Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi, and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters. With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And the pitch. Another breaking ball. Did he offer at it on the check swing? Adams puts the tag on the back of Chisholm and the Ruling from the third base umpire, Ron Culpa, is a swing on the curveball in the dirt for strike three. And that's how the game starts for Josiah Gray. Edward Cabrera warming up for the top of the seventh in his major league debut. The Marlins shutting out the Nationals through six, two to nothing. Here it comes. Swing and a drive, straightaway center field, and deep dealer Cruz racing back. It's over his head, and it is gone. It just clears, and Josh Bell has tied the game with one big swing on an 0-2 pitch. The line in the pitch. Swing and a drive to left field deep. Back on this one is Brinson to the warning track, to the wall, and it's gone! And the Nationals go back-to-back. Yadiel Hernandez with yet another opposite field home run, and the Nationals have their first lead of the night, 3-2. Machado has his sign, and he brings it home. Swing and a drive to right field deep, Soto chasing over. He lunges, can't get it, it's Byman to the wall. This game is tied, Sierra scores. Finnegan is ready, it's a 1-1 count. Here's the kick and the pitch. Swing and a ground ball through. Base hit left center field. The ball game is over. Sanchez will score the winning run. Jorge Alfaro with an RBI single past the shortstop Escobar. And the Marlins even the series with a 4-3 10 inning win. And welcome to NatSat for Thursday, August 26, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It was right there. This was going to be a feel-good Wednesday night for the Nationals at the Marlins. Josiah Gray had outpitched Edward Cabrera. It took a while, but we finally got to that point. Josh Bell, huge two-run homer. Yadiel Hernandez, attack on homer to give the Nats a 3-2 lead. And then Andres Machado happens in the bottom of the seventh. And then the bottom of the tenth inning happens in an inning that plays out exactly as you would want it to play out if you are an anti extra innings rule man, as my friend Mark Zuckerman is, and the Nationals ultimately fall at the Miami Marlins on Wednesday night, 4-3 in 10 innings. Mark, this could have been a happy night. I think there still are things to be happy about, but it ends up not being quite the night we thought it might be. 
I think this one is going to test our theory that we've been talking about all month, which is, can you separate the result of the game from the important stuff that matters in the big picture? And to me, what happened in innings one through seven, or I should say through the seventh inning stretch, let's say, was way more important than anything that happened after that, as frustrating as the rest of that game was. And we can get into what happened at the end, because I do think there's some interesting stuff that happened in there. But in the big picture, to me, tonight was about Josiah Gray and Edward Cabrera, and both of them impressing, both of them having a few faults along the way as well. And just to me, like, I feel like we're going to look back someday and say, yeah, hey, remember the first time they face each other? Because they've now faced each other 10 times over the years. I I have a hunch we're going to see these two a lot against each other over the years. This was a rarity, what we watched on Wednesday night. So Josiah Gray per MLB Pipeline, number 54 prospect in baseball. Edward Cabrera per MLB Pipeline, number 30 prospect in baseball. Cabrera was making his major league debut. This was just the second game since 2004 in which a top 100 pitching prospect per Pipeline's preseason rankings made his major league debut against another pitcher who had been a top 100 pitching prospect per MLB Pipeline's preseason rankings. And both guys ended up delivering to varying degrees. For Josiah Gray, he to me now is five for five. This was his fifth start as a national. He's been good, you know, to varying degrees in all five starts. On Wednesday night, two runs in six innings, seven strikeouts. Cabrera's final line is misleading. Three runs in six into third innings, but he tossed six scoreless innings until giving up three runs in that top of the seventh inning. We'll get to that in a bit. But the takeaway, 100%, if you're a Nats fan, is Josiah Gray. This was another Josiah Gray day, and this was another successful Josiah Gray day. Two runs in six innings, seven strikeouts, gives up only five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. Does issue three walks. Uh, One of them was intentional. Did throw two wild pitches, but he threw strikes, 62 strikes versus 29 balls on 91 pitches. And if you just take a step back and you say, all right, well, what are we looking at here right now for Josiah Gray? Five starts, ERA of 289, whip of 111. He's continued to deliver, and there's a consistency mark with Josiah Gray that uh, we wish every Nationals pitcher could abide by. All of that is correct, Al, and the bottom line of all of that is fantastic because the results were really good again, and they have been each of his five starts. Now, here's the most amazing part of it to me. He probably had his worst stuff in this game. He was not sharp, and he admitted it, that he wasn't. Definitely wasn't my best day. You know, I battled from inning one through six, but... You know, some days you're going to have performances like that. So, you know, I was grateful to put the team in a position to win the game or keep us in the game at least. You saw his fastball wasn't really commanded where he wanted to be. He even, as effective as his breaking balls were, he bounced a bunch of them in the dirt. And that wasn't really by design. They were sometimes chasing those pitches, but he wasn't trying to leave it that far out in front. And so on a night that he really didn't necessarily have his best stuff and he walked a few batters, for the first time. He still goes six innings and gives up two runs. He still gets 18 swings and misses, 13 of them on the curveball, another two on the slider. And that just to me says how good he can be for how often do we talk about with pitchers of far more experience than Josiah Gray has of just that inability to, to fight through it when you don't have your A stuff and they end up, you know, not making it through the fifth inning or they give up four or five runs. Well, on a night when he didn't have his best stuff, he still goes six and gives up two. And yes, it's against a weaker lineup in the Marlins. Maybe if he's facing the Braves, it's a different result. But I just continue to be impressed with, he clearly has the stuff, 
but he also has just the ability to pitch well, as we saw in this one, even if he didn't have his best stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's what we used to say about Max Scherzer, right? Even when he didn't have his best stuff, he could still be really effective. I think it does time out well and that he was facing the Marlins. You know, if he's facing, you know, the Houston Astros or something like that, maybe the results are ultimately different. But he gets the job done. The run prevention has been there. Like I said, there's a consistency with him that you really appreciate given the inconsistencies of so many other Nationals pitchers so far this year. And I know you've talked about this, and you really see this manifested in the way he pitches. There's a maturity with him. Like, he seems to be someone who is wise beyond his years. You know that phrase of like someone's an old soul? I mean, I don't profess to know Josiah Gray personally, but he seems to really have a command of like who he is, what he wants to be, how he handles himself. He doesn't get thrown off. You know, it's like I remember when Gio Gonzalez would pitch, right? And there would be an error behind him. And oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? And we've seen Steven Strasburg, you know, when he's struggling and he's grabbing his neck and his calf and his oblique and everything else. And it's like with Josiah Gray, There's none of that nonsense, it feels like. Like, he's out there, and he just seems to be much older than he actually is. And that's why several people, myself included, have made the comparison to Jordan Zimmerman. It's not the same arsenal. He's not the same type of person exactly, same physical build, all that. But the composure, the lack of, for better word, emotion when he's out there, that you wouldn't know what the situation was, if it was bases loaded in a tie game, or if he's up five runs, nobody on base. That is such a good trait to have at such a young age. And again, for somebody who has, hasn't really pitched for that long in his career, it's not like he came up and he's like been groomed for this. He pitched at small college, kind of like Jordan Zerman, and just became a pitcher in more recent years. So, I mean, there's so much to like there. And, and you just, I keep thinking to myself, he's only going to keep getting better. And that's such an encouraging thought as well, that like, if this is the low bar for what he's going to be, wow, wait until the, the reins are off, wait until he's got some more experience under his belt. He understands big league hitters a little bit better. There's a whole lot of potential there and a whole lot to like about this kid. And, you know, we're five starts in. (laughs) That's all that it is. It feels like he's been around for a while, doesn't it? It's only five starts. And that is such an encouraging thought. He has become the Nationals' most reliable starting pitcher, which isn't saying a lot right now, especially, certainly this season, especially. But that's something that you can say that and if you're wondering, well, is he maybe like an older prospect? He really isn't. This is his age 23 season. This is not someone who's like 25, 26 and just making it to the majors now. Like, there's a lot of room to grow here. The, this guy's got a lot of time. So you can be as glass half empty as you want. I don't really know what the nits to pick are. I mean, I guess the home runs, right? He gives up another home run. It's another solo homer. This is really kind of funny now what he's doing. Every outing, he gives up a homer, but they're all solo homers. I don't know what the record is on something like that, but this is eight homers to begin his tenure with the Nats. Each has been a solo shot. He doesn't give up big innings. He has yet to really truly get shellacked or rocked or anything like that. For the most part, he's been a good strikeout pitcher. He's averaging more than a strikeout per nine innings, and he's been a steady Eddie. It's been wonderful to see. I'll pick one nit. He twice couldn't get a bunt down. Oh, there you go. Well, Gray will get a second chance here. Gray squares the pitch is popped up. Aguilar makes the catch and will look the runner back to first. I know, and that could have helped. That could have made a difference in this game. He twice was not able to get a bunt down. One of them was that sort of pop-up line drive to the first baseman. So, hey, we're picking nits, but that's all we have with him because there's nothing else to be upset about with him. Yeah, and when there's a universal DH, it won't matter anymore. We will no longer have to suffer with pitchers batting. So even that will be going bye-bye. So Josiah Gray will be in good shape. Oh, by the way, the uh, other mega prospect who the Nationals acquired from the Los Angeles Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Caber Ruiz for a second consecutive game on Wednesday night. Two home runs. 
One and one on Kbert Ruiz, infield in for Syracuse, and this pitch is hitting the air. High and deep to right, and this ball is gone. It's another two-home run game for Kbert Ruiz. Back-to-back two-homer games for one of the top prospects in all of baseball. He has hit five home runs with Rochester, and all five have come against the Syracuse Mets. This is some run mark right now. Whether it's at the major league level or the minor league level, Nats catchers are slaying it. We had a good game for Riley Adams offensively on Wednesday night. Tress Barrera had done well in previous recent games. And now Kbert Ruiz is Johnny Bench at AAA Rochester, homering like a madman. This is something. I, I can't wait to see him in person. And the thing is, I don't think we're going to see it for a while, even though the performance suggests that he is ready to be in the big leagues. But I can't help but think about the fact that the Nats just promoted Cade Cavalli to AAA, and you certainly want him and Ruiz working together several times before splitting them up. So unless that's going to happen at the big league level, which I don't think is going to happen, at least not very soon, I think Ruiz is going to stay there in Rochester at least for several weeks, catch Cavalli a few times until perhaps we see him. But boy, that's going to be exciting the day that he comes up. And now how do you divvy up the uh, catching time <laughs> between these guys? Every game, one of them is doing something to turn your heads, and that's a great position to be in, and um, it should make for a really compelling spring training next year when they're all three together. So we mentioned that the Nats were in position to win this game, and they were. Now, for a while, it looked like the Nats might get shut out. Edward Cabrera looked really good over six innings, and then third time through the lineup, top of the seventh inning, the Nats got two. Old Eddie Cabrera. We had Alcides Escobar beginning things off with a leadoff infield single, or excuse me, a leadoff eight-pitch walk. He had the leadoff infield single earlier in the game. That was the top of the fourth. But Escobar, a leadoff eight-pitch walk off Cabrera to get things going in that top of the seventh. Then came big blow number one, Josh Bell, a one-out, two-run homer. That was one of the more interesting home runs you'll ever see. It was hit to dead center, but it was hit essentially on a line drive. I don't know what the launch angle was on that. It certainly was not much. The homer ends up going a projected 413 feet per stat cast, has an exit velocity of 109.7 miles per hour per stat cast. He got it out. It was essentially a wall scraper, though it was a deep wall scraper, if that makes sense. So a huge homer there for Josh Bell to tie the game at two. And then right after that comes big blow number two, Yadiel Hernandez, a one-out opposite field solo shot to left field of Edward Cabrera. So Bell and Yadiel go back to back. Nats are up 3-2, entering the bottom of the seventh. And then just like that, give it all back. Andres Machado, who had been doing well. Like Machado's not one of these guys who'd been a mess for so long, right? But recently, it feels like he started to come back down to earth and he ends up giving up the game-tying run in the bottom of the seventh inning. A leadoff triple is given up to Magnuris Sierra on a 1-2 pitch and then a one-out ribby double by Jesus Aguilar to tie the game at three. So an emotional roller coaster if you're a Nationals fan in that seventh inning on Wednesday night. Yeah, so let's start with the top of the inning. The launch angle on Bell's homer, 21 degrees. That's ah. pretty low. <laughs> That's very low. And the other thing, he did it on an 0-2 count. And we've talked about this, how good he's been. I looked it up. He's even better than I realized. When he puts an 0-2 ball in play or, or strikes out, when basically when the at-bat ends on an 0-2 count, He's now 7 for 23 with two doubles and two homers. He's got a 956 OPS, and that's best in the majors in that count. I mean, obviously, it's a small sample, and it's, it's impossible to be a large sample because there just aren't that many times 0-2 that you uh, end in a bat. 
But still, that is something. He said he doesn't really have a whole lot of reason for it, except he feels like he's been very good at not chasing lately when they're out of the zone. And he thinks maybe you get to that point, you've already seen what the guy has. And so when he throws it on pitch number three, it's a pitch that he's already seen before. And so if it's in the zone, he's got a good look at it. And that came on a registered as a 92 mile hour changeup from Cabrera. And the Yadiel Hernandez homer one batter later came on what is somehow a 94 mile an hour changeup. And when you watch the replay up close, you can see he's holding it like a changeup grip. And that is astounding to me that he's throwing a changeup that hard. And I actually think that that's going to come back to haunt him. And it did in this game. If your changeup is only three or four miles an hour less than your fastball, it's almost like you're just throwing a weaker fastball. I know it may have some movement on it that's different, but ideally you want it to be about 10 miles an hour off of the fastball. And so it's why I actually thought as good as he was for six innings, I felt like legitimately the Nats were going to get to him the longer he stayed in the game. They were hitting some balls hard. He only had induced two swings and misses in the first six innings. So he was effective. He was getting quick outs, but they were putting the bat on the ball. And I just felt like they just needed a little bit of time to see him. And sure enough, the third time through when they faced in the top of the seventh, you saw what happened. They had a big inning. And at least for a few moments there, it looked like they were going to hand him the loss and give Gray the win. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, not that we really care about the Marlins, but here you have a guy making his major league debut, six scoreless innings, about to face a lineup for a third time, has given up some hard hit balls. Why is he still in the game at that point? Like, I'm all for pushing pitchers, but you do kind of wonder. We've seen Davey Martinez play conservatively with Josiah Gray. Kind of interesting that Mattingly did not do that with Cabrera. So my hunch would be, having not heard what Don Mattingly said, my hunch is that he probably went into this game assuming that he'd only go six. But the problem was his pitch count after six innings was 57. So how are you going to pull him? Six scoreless innings on 57 pitches, how are you going to pull him? Now, yeah, you can say, hey, we don't want him facing the lineup the third time, but that's a tough spot to be in as a manager to have to do that. And maybe he should have, maybe the third time through hurt him, but he was so efficient for six innings that to me, that's a tough thing to have to tell a kid, sorry, you're out of the game now. Yeah, well, the Nats got to him. That was great to see. Machado struggled in the bottom of the seventh inning. Nats Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games, You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season. For Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park. And make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. 
With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington National stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. 0-2, a little pop-up shallow right, out is Baker, still out, he slides and he makes the catch! Throwback to first, it's a double play! Darren Baker in his FredNats debut, doing a little bit of everything. And here he starts a 4-3 double play to end the sixth inning. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Both is into the wind. 2-2 delivery, breaking ball, grounded to third. Under the glove of Keebone trying to backhand it down the left field line. Shortstop Escobar has to chase it. And De La Cruz into second. He'll stop there. And the Marlins have the potential winning run in scoring position with nobody out. As Keeboom came up, tried to backhand it and basically whiffed on it. In terms of the Nats bullpen the rest of the game, Kyle McGowan, a perfect bottom of the eighth. He's looked good since he came off the 10-day injured list. Austin Voth, a scoreless bottom of the ninth that nearly was not. So Voth ultimately does preserve the three-all tie despite giving up a leadoff double, which I'm still trying to understand why this was officially ruled as a double. So Brian De La Cruz got credit for the double, but the double came thanks to his grounder not being properly fielded by Carter Keboom. I mean, this to me is an error, or at the very least, if you want to say like it's, um, can you do something where like it's a single and then a one base error or something like that? But Carter Keboom should have stopped that baseball. And instead, he essentially whiffed on an attempted backhanded stab of that Dela Cruz grounder. The ball goes in a left field and Dela Cruz winds up on second base with nobody out. Both did a nice job of negotiating things and getting out of that inning unscathed. And then came Kyle Finnegan in the top of the 10th. And, you know, this is the gimmicky way a 10-inning game can end in 2021. Kyle Finnegan allows an unearned run to end the game. He with the runner on second base to begin things, issues back-to-back one-out intentional walks off a leadoff sacrifice bun, and then gives up the one-out walk-off RBI single to Jorge Alfaro. So 
really, the Nats bullpen saved for Machado in that seventh inning. Wasn't that bad in this game? Just some uh, unluckiness taking place. The key boom play, I, I agree. Maybe it wasn't a straight-up routine play, but in that situation, you have to, at very minimum, have to be able to knock the ball down, not let it get past you. So I could see, like, maybe it would have been a hit, but to let him get to second base, that's inexcusable to me. You have to knock the ball down, and I think he got greedy in trying to make a, a backhand play, thinking ahead to make the throw before he made sure that he had the ball. And so I'm not really totally up to verse on, like, what the official scoring rules are if you're allowed to give him a single and an error there, but that's kind of what it felt like, practically speaking, to me. Like, I get that it's not a straight error. I could see that that could be an infield single, but there was no reason for him to reach second base on that. Keyboom's got to be better than that on that play. Fortunately, it didn't come back to bite them. I thought Voth was pretty good after that, so credit to him. And then the bottom of the 10th, and you know my feelings on this, I just don't like a situation in which a pitcher can lose the game without having let anybody reach base against him. I mean, Finnegan did nothing wrong. He gave up a sack bunt that then intentionally walked two batters, which was the right play in that spot. And then he gave him a ground ball to where like the shortstop would normally be playing. And it does make you wonder. I mean, I know the play there is bring the infield in because you have to at least account for the possibility of uh, getting the out at the plate. But part of me wonders, would you be better off staying back and just going for a traditional double play? Because I think they might have turned it if they're playing at their normal positions there. Yeah, it's possible. It's tough. I mean, the whole thing with the runner on second base, it puts a pitcher in a very difficult spot. You know, I mean, the whole thing about this to me is another reason why the whole pitcher win loss thing is just so ridiculous. Like, did Kyle Finnegan really lose that game? Like, no, no, of course not. I mean, it's it's such a silly way of evaluating pitchers. I think most people by now are on board with that. But also, the Carter Keyboom play is why errors I never look at anymore because they're not a reflection of who you are defensively. They can be, but like, there's no error on that play, and yet that's a big play that Carter Keyboom didn't make. I mean, if we're going to still have errors as a stat. There should be some adjustment to the accounting for them so that a play like that just doesn't go down as a double. You know, like that reads in a box score like some line drive off the left field wall. Like it wasn't. It's very different from that. And again, I think most people by now have come around to this. Like you don't judge fielding based on errors. But like for those who still sort of cling to that and you'll still see on TV all the time announcers bring up errors and fielding percentage. And it's like, no, that's not the way to judge defense. The advanced metrics are not perfect. Okay, and people in baseball will tell you that but they are at least an attempt to be a little more sophisticated with this stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like the best way to do it, and, and there are things that sort of measure this, but there hasn't been a great like all-around encompassing stat that everybody uses, would be essentially I, I view it as like there's three types of plays. There's the routine play made, and then there's good plays made, and then the plays not made. That was a play not made. And you can debate whether it should have been made or, or whether it was an error or hit or whatever. That's a play that could have been made that wasn't. And so to me, I think that's more valuable way to look at it than just saying that uh, it's a double. Even if they had called it an error, I don't even know if that's like the best way to describe that either. It's a play that's not routine, but it's a play at the big leagues that you feel like needs to be made, or at the very least, like we said, knock it down. Don't let them get to second base. When it comes to Keyboom, the fielder, so we know he's had the issues getting the baseball from the glove to the throwing hand. He's had some throwing issues. When it comes to catching the baseball, he actually had been all right. And now these last few games, he hasn't been all right. He had that basic routine grounder to second base in the shift the other day that he butchered. He butchers this play on Wednesday night. 
So the hitting's been better. We know that. How much of a leash do you think is on him from a fielding standpoint? Because we've seen him play shortstop and have issues. Now we're seeing him play third base and have issues. At what point do you think the Nats start to entertain the notion of putting him at a less premium defensive position? I don't think they're there yet. I know it is something they have considered for a while, that there's always been a question about does he really have what it's going to take to play a premium infield position. I remember, you know, his first couple weeks in the big leagues when he really struggled at shortstop and already hearing from people speculating that his only hope might be at first base. They weren't even considering third base at that point. We've seen potential at third, potential at second. It just looks like watching him, there's an awkwardness. It's not smooth. Even when he makes the plays, it's not that like traditional smooth fielding infielder that we've come to know from watching baseball over the years. And so I don't know what the answer is there. You can work with them all you want. Maybe there are mechanical things you can do with footwork and being in better position to make plays. But ultimately, you know, it may just not be in the cards for him to be a major league infielder. But the problem then is if you do eventually make that decision to move him somewhere else, he better start hitting enough to justify that. I mean, if you're going to be a first baseman, you're going to be a corner outfielder, a DH, whatever it might end up being, like, you have to be able to hit. Like, you're still in there in spite of your defensive struggles because you are a big bat. And while we've seen better signs from here lately, it's certainly not enough to say, like, oh, yeah, well, he is such a good hitter that will sacrifice the defense and, you know, make him into a Kyle Schwarber in left field or a Josh Bell at first base, something like that. So the other thing with Boom on Wednesday night was him getting thrown at at home to begin the uh, top of the 10th inning there. Floro deals, swinging a ground ball right side. It's a base hit in the right field. Rounding third, headed home, Garcia. The throw in from Sanchez on a couple of bounces, the slide, the tag, and he is out at the plate. So he was the runner on second base to begin that inning, and with the game tied at three, gets thrown out at home on Riley Adams one-out single. It was not easy watching this game on TV as you and I did to see exactly what happened, but he was out by a decent bit. And Carter is a guy who can run. So I guess we're not really sure exactly what happened here, but that was a bad moment for sure. It was. All I'll say is, you know, again, watching on TV and not in person where you can, your eyes can dart back and forth and you see the whole play develop and you know, where is he, when the fielder gets the ball, all that kind of stuff. Watching on TV, and seeing as the camera's panning down to the plate as the throw's coming in, I'm thinking he's probably safe or at worst it's going to be a close play. And then the ball comes in. I'm like, wait, where is he? Oh, he's not even in the frame yet. And I couldn't believe that, that he was that far back. And so I was curious, like, what happened? We never did get a great look at it. It may have been a, a wide turn at third, potentially, because I'm not even necessarily sure that it's a all that bad of a send by Bob Henry, just based on how the ball was hit. It was a nice play by the right fielder to come charging in on it, for sure. But it didn't feel like off the bat, you're not thinking like, oh, you have to hold him. You know, it didn't seem like one of those. So I don't know if he just didn't get a good jump or a wide turn or what it was. But I could not believe that play was easy of an out as it turned out to be. I would have assumed, worst case, that it would have been a bang-bang play, let alone him being safe. And instead, he was out by a considerable margin. Yeah, it was one of those plays on which like everything went well defensively for the Marlins. The right fielder, Jesus Sanchez, really played things well. But scoring from second base on a single like that isn't that big of an ask, especially again for a guy in Carter who can run. So it, it would seem that maybe there was a uh, lack of route efficiency or something going on uh, in that moment there. But the, uh, the latter innings were not banner ones for Carter Keeboom, for sure. All right, something else in this game that I want to get into here. 
Lane Thomas, again, was the national starting center fielder and number one batter. This is now four consecutive games that Victor Robles has not started and that Lane Thomas has been in that Victor Robles spot both in the field and in the lineup. And I've kind of had a skeptical uh, eye, and maybe you can tell by the way I've talked about this when Davey has talked about, you know, Victor was under the weather, as Davey said, during his pregame press conference on Sunday. But, you know, I don't want just want to sit here and call Davey a liar when, you know, we don't know what Davey knows. So maybe it is that Victor had been ill. But we did see Victor come into the game off the bench in the previous game. And then with Lane Thomas in that Robles spot again on Wednesday, Davey in his pregame presser does tell you guys, hey, Victor is feeling better. But Davey concedes, hey, I want to see more of Lane Thomas. I think he's, uh, he's feeling, feeling better. Lane's playing well. I mean, I, and I want to watch, I want to see him continue to play. We'll get Victor in there, uh, but, you know, he's feeling a lot better. So we'll get Victor in there here. Either today he'll play again, come off the bench, and maybe, maybe starting tomorrow. But um, Lane's playing well. I mean, I want, and I want to see him play. Now, it wasn't a great game for Lane on Wednesday night. Uh, Mike Trout had an off night. He went 0 for 4, although he did have a loud out for the third out in the top of the third. He hit a deep fly out to left center field. The Marlins center fielder, Brian De La Cruz, making a leaping backhanded catch against the outfield wall. But what would you say is the proper way to frame this? Is Victor being benched right now? Is uh, Victor just being put off to the side right now? What do you think is truly going on here? We know what Davey has said, but what's the truth about what's happening? Yeah, so I wrote about this some uh, on MassInSports.com because I, this was the first game that it really struck me as, okay, this just became news here. Victor was legitimately not feeling well over the weekend, so that was fine. And then Tuesday night, you could say, okay, well, he's still kind of coming back, so let's not force him to go out there. But the fact that he finished the game in the field, and I think even had a hit in the game as well, or drew a walk, he drew a walk in the ninth inning, suggested, okay, he's he's certainly well enough to start the next game. So the fact that he didn't against a righty, that to me was a little bit of a red flag and saying something more is going on here. And Davey's explanation is essentially that Lane Thomas has earned the right to play more because he's been so good that it's almost like you can't bench him when he's been this good. But I think intrinsic in that as well is that Victor Robles has had countless opportunities this year and even going back to last year to show what he can do. He's had a month now to be the leadoff hitter, and it still isn't happening, not with any regular basis. It's been a little bit better the last few weeks, but still not great and not like what they ultimately really need to see from him to be convinced that he is the long-term answer there. And so I think it is kind of telling that they went with Thomas. Now, I don't know what that means for Thursday. I wouldn't be surprised if Robles gets to start, but I wouldn't be surprised if Thomas gets to start either. And I think as long as this kid is playing well, they're going to want to get a look at him. I'm not sure there's a whole lot left for them to see of Victor Robles at this point. I think they know what he is. Now, you hope that there's still more there, of course. But if this last month plus of the season is about evaluation, it seems like there's a lot more that needs to be evaluated of Lane Thomas than there is of Victor Robles. And I think that's why we are where we are right now. And so I think you are going to see him out there more. Well, I would say, I guess, a few things. Number one, you could play Lane Thomas in left field and Victor in center. I know Yadiel Hernandez has been hitting well, but depending on how you view Yadiel moving forward, I don't know why you can't play both. I find that odd that like they, it has to be Yadiel in left and it has to be Lane Thomas in center. The other thing is, look, clearly Davey has been down on Victor throughout this year. I mean, the items of evidence on that really have been mounting throughout the season. Pulling the plug on him as a leadoff batter. It was just a few weeks ago that Davey said Victor and Andrew Stevenson were going to start splitting time. That never really came to be in part because Stevenson was so bad. But Davey's kind of been looking for an exit ramp when it comes to Victor Robles. And maybe he feels like he's found one here with Lane Thomas. But 
if we're going to say, hey, give a guy a shot over these remaining two months, then give the guy the shot, all right? And just because Lane Thomas is doing well doesn't mean Victor Robles doesn't play anymore. Like I said, you can put Lane Thomas in left field. I find it kind of odd that they're not doing that. Now, again, I understand Yadiel's been doing well lately, but I don't know. Do they view Yadiel Hernandez as a real piece moving forward? Because if they don't, then let's see Victor out there in center and Lane Thomas in left and see what that ends up providing. I tend to agree with you there, although what I would say is that Yadiel is one of their only like legitimately productive hitters <laughs> right now. And yes, as much as this is all about evaluation and it's not about wins and losses, they are still trying to like put their best foot forward and trying to do something offensively. And right now, I don't know there's anybody else that can legitimately hit in the fifth spot behind Soto and Bell. As long as Yadiel's hitting the ball the way that he is, I think he has earned the right to play a lot. It doesn't have to be every day. So certainly, I think there are times you could say, hey, we can sit him and put Thomas in left and Robles in center, and maybe we will see some of that moving forward. But to say that like it should just be Thomas in left and Robles in center every day because Yadiel Hernandez is older and you know doesn't need to play on a rebuilding team, like I get the idea of you only have so many productive hitters right now. It's okay to play them the bulk of the time, even if they don't necessarily figure into your winning plans three years from now. We mentioned Riley Adams earlier. I don't want to just gloss over it. The guy got on base three more times on Wednesday night, two for three with two singles and a walk. Riley Adams over 42 plate appearances for the Nats has an OPS of 1,063. Uh, you know, with the usual caveats of a small sample size, let's see where this goes. Riley Adams has done a really good job as a Nationals catcher over these last few weeks. He has. Um, I mean, there were good quality at bats too. The hit and run. I love the hit and run in the uh, seventh inning, hitting the ball exactly where the second baseman would have been. And then if not for that weird key boom play coming around third, I mean, Riley Adams might have been the hero of the game driving in the winning run in the top of the 10th. That was another good quality at bat, hitting the ball the other way. I know we've seen him hit for some powered left field, but he also has the ability to just hit the ball the other way for singles. So there's a lot to like there. I still think defensively, there's maybe a little bit more we need to see. And I've been struck by how all of a sudden the Nats can't throw anybody out trying to steal bases anymore. There was such a strength with Gomes and Avila the first four months. It's not happening now. Some of that's on the pitchers, but I think some of it's on the catchers as well. And that is an area where if he's going to make it as a catcher long-term, I think he is going to have to get a little bit better at. But again, we're picking nits here. And it's hard not to be impressed with what we've seen from him, especially at the plate. Game three at the Marlins Thursday night at 7-10. Patrick Corbin will be starting for the Nats. He's coming off a very good outing. Can he make it back-to-back good outings? Corbin in that 4-1 win at Milwaukee last Friday night. One run in six into third inning. Seven strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just three hits. He threw a bunch of strikes. 61 strikes versus 31 balls on 92 pitches. He did the thing that Davey had asked Corbin to do, and that is throw a bunch of fastballs. You know, I was thinking about this. You had a well-pitched game in game one of the series from Eric Fetty. You get a well-pitched game in game two of the series from Josiah Gray. When is the last time the Nationals in a three-game series this season got three well-pitched games in terms of the starting pitching? It feels like that has not happened in forever. I'm wondering if it has happened at all this year because we know Strasburg is barely pitched. Corbin had a few good starts. Maybe maybe there was a point early on where like Scherzer, Ross, and Fetty did it together. Remember they had that run where the starting pitching was really good? You're right. When the team got hot in June, the starters ERA was really good for a few weeks. So it's probably in there. You're right. But 
you know, there probably was a Palo starting there too, to be honest. <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, for a team that we had kind of always just come to expect that to be the case year in and year out, it's been striking how that has not been. So it would be very nice to see that. You would think this is a good matchup for Corbin, a weak hitting Marlins lineup, as we've said, a lineup that seems to chase breaking balls out of the zone. And that would be one of Patrick Corbin's specialties if he can get that going. So we'll see. But the last one was great. But as we said, he needs to do this consistently. And I do think the rest of the season is important for him to rediscover his form and not go into the offseason thinking that he's like one of the worst pitchers in baseball, but that he can actually be an effective, at least middle of the pack starter for them. Because as much youth as they're going to have in their rotation moving forward, they need at least one reliable veteran to kind of lead the way. And that would be very nice if it was the guy who's already under contract for another $82 million for the next three years. Oh, yeah. I mean, with Corbin, you almost feel like there's no option here. This has to work, okay? This can't be that you go through the remaining three years of this contract with him a total loss cause. The Nats have got to figure this out. Maybe, just maybe, we started to see some of that in that last outing. Quick email. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Donald Harrison uh, regarding one of the standouts for the Nationals on Wednesday night, Riley Adams. He says, if there is a DH next year, why not have Riley as the DH and have Ruiz, as in Cabert Ruiz, catch. You know, we've talked about this with Riley Adams potentially playing some first base. It's interesting with the Nationals, they do have a lot of kind of like obvious DH candidates already on the team, right? Josh Bell, potentially. Riley Adams, potentially. Yadiel Hernandez, potentially. Ryan Zimmerman, if he's back. I don't know that he will be, but if he's back, uh, potentially. So the Nationals are already well-equipped, uh, should there be a universal DH next season. Maybe too equipped, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And that's not necessarily a good thing. You do need guys who can play defense and play every day. And the DH, you know, I'm not a huge follower of the AL, but I feel like those days of the big lumbering, big poppy or Edgar Martinez, who is just in there for the bat and they DH every day. I feel like for the most part that's gone. Maybe Nelson Cruz is the one who still does it, but I feel like more teams use that as a way to give guys days off and spread it around. And so ideally you have players who can play positions and DH maybe a couple times a week instead of five or six times a week. So I don't know that the Nats are necessarily really well equipped for this if it comes true. All I know is, above all else, they need good hitters and they need good fielders no matter whether there's a DH or not in 2022. Yeah, no, you're right. That is how the DH is being done now in the American League. And no doubt the Nationals need to get more positional versatility on the roster next year. It's kind of funny, though, how they're like already ready for the DH. It's almost like they thought there would be a DH, and there isn't a DH, and it didn't really work out that way. But yeah, Riley Adams is someone, if he keeps hitting like this, you're going to want to find spots for him in the lineup moving forward. You hit us up with an email, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can always send us a voice memo as well, asking a question, making a comment, telling a tale, your October 2019 experiences. We continue to welcome those. Again, the email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet the show as well, at Nats underscore chat. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. Doing so costs you nothing. And if you haven't already, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review or longer, if you prefer, uh, saying how much you like the pod. Doing those things helps out a lot. And, you know, something we've uh, become mindful of over the last few weeks, especially with the state of the national season, we're hearing from more and more people who <laughs> they don't actually watch the games. They just listen to the podcast. Which is totally fine. If you, if you want to consume the Nationals that way, you know, like go ahead and do it that way or watch a portion of the game, you know, we, maybe we should make a t-shirt mark. It's like, we watch the Nats so you don't have to, or we follow the Nats so you don't have to, you know, but you can, you can get 
your three and a half hours worth of uh, a Nats fix in a, a tidy 25, 30 minutes on the Nats Chat podcast here? Well, as a, an employee of Masson, I do have to endorse watching the games. I do have to say that, especially on Thursday, because I'm hosting pre and post games. So please watch those. I'm going to be back in filling for Dan Colco. But yes, it is. It's a nice thing to hear from people how much we have become part of their daily routine. Even if they aren't watching the games, it's nice to be able to fill that void for them. But it's funny. I think we all didn't really know how this was going to go after the trade deadline and what the interest level in the team was going to be. And just take people behind the scenes a little bit. We're getting more listeners now than we did earlier in the season. And that's a great sign both of the reach of the podcast, but also the fan base out there who I think is embracing what the Nationals are now doing and understand that this is a big picture situation and it's not just about what happens in each individual game. And they're still finding what's going on compelling, whether they're watching the games or listening to us. So we appreciate that. And I hope that we are sort of pivoting ourselves and providing you the not just the breakdowns of the games, but a look at the bigger picture here and helping get you through all this and understand where they're going as a franchise. Yeah, I mean, the Nationals aren't a very good team, but I think they are a very interesting team. And if you're into things like team building and roster construction and direction of a franchise, the Nationals are actually a really interesting case study right now because you can legitimately argue for multiple paths here. And so there's a lot to get into to say nothing of, you know, the sell off and these prospects and what, you know, some of these guys have been doing over these last few weeks. All Nationals radio highlights on the Nats chat pod or courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast, and we will leave you with one of our latest memories of October 2019. This is courtesy of Patrick Patterson of Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. This is Patrick from Chesapeake Beach. I have a memory of the 2019 run to the World Series that has to do with Game 5 of the NLDS against the Dodgers. I was watching the game at a bar with a couple of friends of mine, and uh, right about the middle of the seventh inning, the bar closed and turned off all the TVs. And, and I was thinking to myself, wow, this is really a, a, a testament to the level of faith that uh, the fan base has in this baseball team that it's been eliminated at this stage of the playoffs so many times over the last decade or so. But anyway, I, I drive home. I'm recording the game anyway, so I figure I'll catch up when I get there. And I walk in the door and my wife greets me and, and she says, uh, you know, is everything, do you think everything's all right across the street? And I said, I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I, I heard the neighbors just screaming at each other a, a second ago. And I thought, oh, okay. So of course, being the nosy neighbor that I am, I just take a peek out the front window just to make sure there's nobody you know, running nude in their front yard and wielding an axe and, you know, everything seemed to be fine. So I start walking upstairs and I think to myself, you know, he, he's a pretty big baseball fan. I, I wonder if he's watching the game. So then I sprint upstairs, get the TV turned on real quick. And sure enough, right by this time, it's, it's in the, it's in the ninth inning and uh, the game is all tied up. So the bad news was I missed the back-to-back jacks, but the good news was that there was no domestic violence in the neighborhood that night. Kershaw's 1-0 to Rendon, swung on, hit of the year to deep left center field. Taylor going back, warning track, at the wall, he leaps, it is gone, goodbye! Bang! Zoom goes Rendon on the second pitch from Clayton Kershaw. And this is now a one-run game here in the top of the eighth inning. Rendon with his first home run of the series and the postseason. He drives in his fifth run of this series. And it's now the Dodgers three and the Nationals two with nobody out here at the top of the eighth inning. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. 
But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.